This episode of Mayo Clinic Talks is brought to you by National Dairy Council. Since 1915, National Dairy Council is dedicated to research and education of dairy foods. As a nonprofit organization founded by dairy farmers, National Dairy Council is committed to providing science-based education on dairy's nutritional benefits for health and wellness. Learn more at usdairy.com backslash National Dairy Council. This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We now have a variety of pharmacologic options for treating osteoporosis, which are effective in improving bone density, but more importantly, decreasing the risk of fractures. However, rather than treating osteoporosis, what advice can we give our patients that will help prevent loss of bone density and hopefully prevent osteoporosis? Do we know what it takes to build strong, healthy bones? Which nutrients are important for bone development? What role does exercise play and what type of exercise should we be recommending? I'll be asking these questions and more to our guest, Dr. Dan Hurley, an endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic as we discuss bone basics and tips for good bone health. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Dan, it is great to see you again. Thank you again for joining me with this. This is a fun topic. Thank you, Daryl. I'm happy to be here and it's fun to see you again as well. Well, let's start by describing how bone development occurs. I kind of think of it like building a house because it does change throughout our life from childhood to middle age and then to elderly. So what happens with our bones during that time frame? Well, a lot of people think that bone is more like just a solid piece of wood in a house, but it's actually a growing tissue, uh, slow growing like a tree compared to the skin, which is more equivalent to fast growing like grass. But as, as we all know, kids grow and the epiphyses close at, in the late teens, but bone continues to accrue and develop into the mid 20s. So it's very important to realize that as we grow, we need several nutrients as well as adequate calories to help bone growth to reach a peak bone mass at about age 24 in women, 26 in men. So like many other organs or conditions, we kind of peak at about mid-20s and then it's kind of downhill after that. Close. <laughs> we do peak in the mid-20s, but, you know, with adequate nutrition, good exercise, the bone density tends to stay the same and maintain until women lose estrogen at menopause. The same can occur to men if they happen to lose testosterone, and let's just say in treating a prostate cancer or other causes of hypogonadism. But Hormones are so important for building bone in the teens and the 20s, maintaining it through the early uh, adult years for women. But at menopause, it seems like that's the most important thing to maintain bone health. And when menopause occurs, bone loss starts to occur. So it's not all downhill at age 30, more like 45 to 55 when menopause okay. occurs for women. So since men don't typically have a menopause, their decline is more gradual than uh, a female who loses the hormone status in some early 50s? It is. It's correct. However, there is a huge genetic component to bone loss as well. We know that 
the highest population that's at risk are Caucasian women, followed by Caucasian men. If we're talking diabetes, that's African-American men and women. So there's a genetic component, and it's really important to try and reach peak bone mass as best as possible. So if we are not doing all that we can do for bone and do not reach peak bone mass, when we start to lose bone later, we're more at risk of developing osteoporosis and fracture. And that sets us up nicely for the rest of this discussion. Let's talk about the nutrients that we need to reach that peak bone density. Let's start with calcium. How much do we need? Well, we need about a thousand milligrams of calcium for men and women. Women need a little bit more and we need this early on. It's recommended that calcium intake after four years of age should be a thousand milligrams of elemental calcium. And it can be any source of calcium, actually. It's been studied for cow's milk, goat milk, camel milk, carbonate citrate. We just want calcium. The difference is that how much calcium a person is able to get in depends upon what it's bound to. So calcium citrate is like a Volkswagen. It doesn't carry a lot, whereas calcium carbonate carries a lot more like an SUV. But we need about 1,000 for men and women. Teenage years, maybe up to 1,300 milligram of calcium. And... For those women that are seeking pregnancy or nursing, maybe 1,300 as well. But in general, 1,000 milligrams of calcium would be the minimum amount for most of us. Do women need more once they're in menopause? It's recommended that they do. Yes, they've recommended that they take 1,200 milligrams of calcium. And there's a, an allowance. You know, I like ice cream and pizza, so <laughs> you can take a little bit more. There's allowance up to 1,500. More than 2,000 a day may run the risk of kidney stones. And of course, if someone has a history of kidney stones, then that needs to be evaluated mm -hmm. a little more closely with the urine calcium to see sure. how much oral is needed. But yes, postmenopausal women need more. I have heard that calcium carbonate is best absorbed in an acid stomach. And if you do not have much stomach acid or you're taking an acid suppressing medication, calcium citrate may be a better choice. Is, is that accurate? Yes and no. <laughs> so let me explain. There's a group of ethnic population around the Mediterranean that are achlorhydric, they don't make acid. So if they take calcium carbonate, they won't absorb it on an empty stomach. A calcium carbonate needs to be broken down into particles and then to go in solution, and you need acid to make it go into solution. However, if these same people with achlorhydria take that calcium carbonate with food, there's enough acid in food that they absorb it just fine. So if someone's taken a proton pump inhibitor, and many are, mm -hmm. if they take their calcium carbonate with food, they should be fine. And of course, if someone really wants to know if they're absorbing it, we would check a 24-hour urine calcium to be sure. Okay. I had a patient last week who um, drinks almond milk, and she asked me, how is that for calcium? I, I didn't know. And I thought, well, I'm going to be talking to Dan next week. I'll ask him, how is almond milk for calcium? It's excellent. Again, the body doesn't care where the calcium comes from. It just wants calcium. 99% of all the calcium in the body is in our bone. And so a cup of dairy milk has 300 milligrams of calcium. And then things like rice milk and soy milk need calcium added. And that's added to the amount of dairy milk, so about 300. But mm -hmm. almond milk has more, up to 430, as does tofu, has about 430 per half cup. So if a person takes three glasses of dairy milk, 
at 300 each, that's 900 milligrams. But two glasses of almond milk is going to be about 860. So you get a little bit more calcium in the almond milk. And again, body doesn't care where it comes from, just mm -hmm. needs calcium. So is calcium in foods any different than the calcium we may get from supplements? Because, you know, we've also tried to teach our patients to avoid uh, saturated fats and many dairy products have saturated fats. So if they're cutting back on that, is there any difference in the supplement? I always tell my wife that the best calcium is in ice cream. So I get a lot of ice of cream that way. That way, But the reason we say food is probably best because there's other things in food that is in addition to calcium. So for instance, a glass of milk will have vitamin A, it'll have a little zinc, it'll have some protein. So that's oftentimes why you may hear food is the best source of calcium. But again, those that take calcium supplements, which is just pure calcium, absorb the calcium and it has an effect on bone just fine, whether it be a tablet or food. Okay. Now, you mentioned tofu being relatively high in calcium. So a patient, in fact, I had one yesterday who uh, has a lactose deficiency, lactase deficiency. She doesn't eat or drink dairy products. What foods can I tell her that would be good for her to eat other than tofu? Unfortunately, foods do not have a lot of calcium in them. Uh, even our milk is fortified if it's not cow milk. So beans are probably the best source of calcium. A comment I always have is I eat a lot of broccoli. Uh, so am I okay for my calcium? Well, a half a cup of broccoli only has 30 milligrams of calcium. Mm. But beans and legumes probably have a little bit more, more, such as 100 milligrams per cup. So if a person had, for instance, a cup of navy beans, that would be 125 milligrams. Or white beans, 150 milligrams. So beans are probably going to give a person the best source of calcium outside of dairy or supplement. Okay. The reading I was doing on this topic uh, indicated that surprisingly prunes have a fair amount of calcium. And then I thought, well, you're also gaining some benefit from exercise because you'll be running to the bathroom all the time. So I didn't know that prunes had calcium in them. But well, what about other nutrients? What else is out there that we need to know about? Well, I was involved in a, a project a few years back looking at the literature on things like phosphate, magnesium, fluoride. We know that all of the vitamins and minerals and trace elements are important for growth. That's been done in animal studies. The problem with studies in adults is many of us don't have a deficiency of vitamin C. So if we give vitamin C back, for instance, we're giving more than the body really needs. Mm -hmm. And in those studies, there's only a few randomized controlled studies, mostly for calcium, fluoride and strontium, vitamin D and vitamin C. So if we just look at minerals, calcium has been studied the best. It's been shown to have an effect on bone density and decreasing fractures uh, in randomized studies. But not for magnesium and phosphorus. The good news is that we absorb phosphorus very easily. The body excretes the excess. Magnesium is controlled by the kidney. So we really don't necessarily need to take a magnesium supplement unless someone may be on a diuretic or has some sort of a malabsorption. Okay. Well, we know that calcium is one of the major building blocks for, uh, for bone. Uh, so what role does vitamin D play? Good question. It, it is huge. And there's a lot of confusion of vitamin D right now. Vitamin D helps absorb the calcium. Calcium is passively absorbed across the gut. So vitamin D 
has receptors on the gut to actively absorb the calcium. And then once it gets to bone to help mineralize the bone, I explain it to patients just like it's uh, sunlight that turns cement to concrete. It helps uh, solidify and harden the bone. If patients don't have enough vitamin D, they can have soft bones called osteomalacia and the bone density will be diminished because the bone is not mineralized. We also know that there are really good randomized controlled studies looking at vitamin D and it has a positive effect on both vertebral and non-vertebral fractures. So calcium and vitamin D have studied, been studied a lot and uh, it's important that patients take adequate vitamin D. Okay. So you mentioned the importance of vitamin C. The other vitamin I was surprised to hear plays a role in bone development is vitamin K. So how does that fit in with everything? Well, vitamin K helps lay down that wet cement, that matrix of bone, and it helps what's called carboxylation of the matrix, kind of using a better structure of collagen for the bone matrix. People that are low in vitamin K have decarboxylation, and therefore studies have been shown that they have decreased bone density. The good news is that when we eat a variety of vegetables, our body makes vitamin K. And that's why when someone has a blood clot, for instance, we're giving medication to block vitamin K because mm -hmm. it's also important in clotting. So most of us do not need extra vitamin K. There have been some studies out there, uh, but no randomized controlled studies. It does seem to have an effect on fractures, but primarily if someone's deficient in vitamin K. I don't hesitate to let someone take vitamin K if they want it, but it, it's certainly not going to have the effect that vitamin D could have. Yeah. Well, you referred to warfarin therapy, and we do have patients who are on chronic warfarin therapy for sometimes decades. Are they at risk for decreased bone density? I'm not aware of that, and I haven't seen that, but is that an issue? It is. They're more at risk for fractures. We used to think that it was just related to the warfarin, Coumadin, but we also know it's related to long-term heparin for those that need it. Very few people need long-term heparin. But yes, those patients have been shown in case-controlled longitudinal studies to have an increased risk of fracture. So do we do anything special for those patients? I, I assume try to make sure they're getting adequate calcium and vitamin D, but is there anything else we can do to uh, help prevent that problem? Yes, especially for postmenopausal women, because postmenopausal women, as I mentioned, are at the highest risk of bone loss. So those patients need to be screened earlier for bone loss and then to give them pharmacotherapy to help prevent bone loss. After menopause, estrogen deficiency, bone loss is ongoing, and we can mitigate that uh, with drugs that are anti-resorptive that block the bone loss. So those patients need to be screened and treated if they are found to have bone loss. Okay. Well, the major triad of treatment that we often tell our patients is calcium, vitamin D, and exercise. So what role does exercise play in bone development? It's really important. We know that, for instance, patients that lose weight can lose bone. Patients that have maybe an accident and a paraplegia are going to lose bone if, if they lose muscle and are not weight-bearing. So weight-bearing, muscle-resistant exercise is important, bone-like strain. And so that's very important. However, it's hard to really gain a lot of bone density just with exercise. You really have to be almost a bodybuilder to make a significant improvement but it can help mitigate the bone loss, particularly uh, in men. 
and those that are postmenopausal women, it may slow the rate of bone loss, but it's not going to eliminate the rate of bone loss in postmenopausal women. And is there a particular type of exercise they should be doing? Anything that tugs on the bone. So weight bearing, okay. walking, gliding, any upright. Swimming is less weight-bearing, so there's less resistance. Muscle strengthening exercise, pulley weights, all that is is good for the bone. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about body weight. It seems like the greatest at-risk population is the really thin, frail individuals. So are people who are overweight protected in any way? They are, because every time I take a step, I'm lifting my body weight. So that's mm -hmm. helping put strain on my hips, my long bones, my spine. We know that, for instance, people that have sudden weight loss after gastric bypass, they're more prone to have bone loss and fractures five years later. So uh, significant weight loss is going to take that strain off of the bone, and that can lead to bone loss. Of course, if someone's an athlete, particularly woman, and they develop loss of estrogen manifested by irregular menses, that's going to have an effect on the bone much before menopause. So it's another red flag to be aware of if weight loss occurs so fast in mm -hmm. premenopausal women that they lose their menstrual cycle. Okay. I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. We now have many good products, which increase bone density, decrease risk of fractures. So where do we get the most bang for our buck to stimulate healthy bone formation when people are young or older to help decrease the bone loss? Well, I'm going to say both. And I okay. hope, hope that was your answer as well, Daryl. Yep. So we want to reach peak bone mass as high as possible. My culture growing up was drinking mostly milk at every meal. That doesn't happen uh, so much anymore. It's Very uh, true. Yeah. It's uh, sodas or water or energy drinks. And so unless someone's taking calcium, we may not reach peak bone mass at age mid-20s like we could have if we took adequate calcium. Now, someone could take water or soda with calcium supplements and still gain peak bone mass. But building peak bone mass is really critical. However, especially in postmenopausal women, as mentioned, it's almost impossible to prevent bone loss. It's just to the degree of which the bone loss occurs. So the most important thing for postmenopausal women is to get screened, just like a person would get screened for mammogram or prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. And so the recommendation is to have a postmenopausal woman screened at about age 65 or 15 years after menopause. So if someone had an early menopause, you would screen 15 years after that early menopause. Okay. So screening is critical because this is a preventable disease. We can arrest bone loss. We can actually build bone loss. But once the bone loss has become so great, there's not a lot of substrate to build upon. So we can't be quite as effective as we could earlier in the disease process. In the postmenopausal women, all of these things we're talking about, nutrition, exercise, and so forth, can you actually increase your bone density or do this just have a increased risk of loss if you're not getting adequate calcium and DE and exercise? Yeah, that's a really good question. So let me just start by saying there are studies around the time of menopause. So when women still have normal estrogen, if they're not taking enough calcium and vitamin D before menopause, they will lose bone compared to women taking adequate calcium and vitamin D. So calcium and vitamin D are critical. Now, after menopause, calcium and vitamin D can slow 
bone loss, but it can't prevent it. Estrogen is just so potent. Mm -hmm. And that process occurs for about 10 years of rapid bone loss following estrogen deficiency, and then it slows down. There are women who decide they don't want to take calcium for one reason or another, maybe it's constipation, number of pills, etc. Those patients can develop what's called a secondary hyperparathyroidism. I'll equate this to a thermostat in our house that keeps the temperature at 72 degrees. And if, if it gets cold outside, that thermostat's going to turn up. Just like if we don't take enough calcium, the parathyroid will turn up and it gets its calcium from bones. So this secondary hyperparathyroidism from not enough calcium or vitamin D intake is going to aggravate and accelerate the bone loss. Maybe slow terminal over time, but over five to 10 years, that adds up and can be quite detrimental. Not yeah. all women are going to get osteoporosis, but about 40%, if left untreated, will have osteoporosis by 80. So it's really important to focus on calcium and vitamin D for those that may be able to get by just with the calcium and vitamin D long term. Well, we've discussed all the things that we should be doing to maximize our bone health. You mentioned extremely low calorie diets and rapid weight loss is something that's not good. Is there anything else that we should either avoid eating or something we should not be doing that can worsen bone growth? There is, for primary care providers, a tool called FRAX, the 10-year uh, fracture risk reduction. And it's similar to the number of risk factors that one would assess for heart attack, if you will. So we can't do much about aging. The older we get, the more frailty we have. And falls are the primary cause of fractures. So fall prevention is key. Mm -hmm. You know, being, make, uh, being sure that if someone has an abnormal gait, they have a cane or a walker. Keeping muscle mass up, which helps with balance, is really key. Smoking is one of those risk factors. Smoking can significantly increase the risk of fracture. And so if someone stops smoking, that risk drops by 50%. Alcohol, um, it's suggested that excess alcohol can aggravate bone loss. But other than that, it's primarily related to other types of conditions like diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, or steroid administration. Okay. So the things a person could do is smoking cessation, increased activity, and fall prevention. You mentioned earlier that our milk intake is not what it used to be, and many are substituting soft drinks for milk as their beverage of choice. Do soft drinks just displace milk without the calcium then, or is there something in the soft drink, such as the phosphorus, that contributes to uh, unhealthy bone? I don't think we know for sure. If you look at the data, what we're doing, as you suggested, is that when we start drinking soft drinks, we just don't drink milk anymore. Right. So we limit the calcium intake. And there's no studies to look at soft drinks plus calcium or a cup of black coffee versus a latte. There's just no studies looking at that. So personally, I think it's actually the loss of calcium mm -hmm. rather than the phosphorus per, per se. The phosphate and sulfate load have been looked at in the past. That interest has kind of died away somewhat. Our body absorbs phosphate very easily. It gets rid of it very easily. We can take in a ton of phosphate in our vegetables and our protein. So personally, I don't think it's the phosphate load. It does have to be buffered, but mm -hmm. I think it's primarily the loss of calcium. Well, Dan, you've given us a lot of good information. Can you summarize our discussion maybe with two or three key points? 
let me just say that uh, most fractures occur with trauma. So trauma avoidance is critical. Watch the balance. Calcium is vital. Just take it, however you take it. Dairy, supplements, almond milk, it, body needs calcium. And then the body needs vitamin D to absorb it. Most of us are deficient. It's been estimated that you know, many of us are low, 25% of the population, and some ethnic groups up to 50%. So we need the vitamin D to absorb the calcium or the calcium won't work. And then for postmenopausal women, just get screened for bone mineral density. We're still way behind in having adequate screening. So that's what I would recommend, Daryl. All right. We've been discussing bone basics and tips for good bone health with Dr. Dan Hurley, bone specialist and endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. Dan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Always great to have you on as a guest. Thank you, Daryl. Happy to be here. You can now listen to several hundred different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. We are honored to have you as a listener and hope you tune in again next week. Stay well.